Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Chitheads. My guest today is Jonathan Edelman. Jonathan is an assistant professor of religion at the University of Florida and an affiliated faculty member at the Center for the Study of Hindu Traditions. He received a BA in philosophy from the University of California, Santa Barbara, an MA in science and religion from Oxford, and a PhD from Oxford in religious studies and theology. While at Oxford, he was affiliated with Harris Manchester College and the Oxford Center for Hindu Studies. His, his fields of research are twofold. The first is the Bhagavata Purana, which we'll be talking about today, as well as the Sanskrit theological and philosophical tradition that surrounds it known as Gaudiya or Chaitanya Vaishnavism. The second is the manner in which Hindu thought and Indian philosophy has interacted with and might further interact with Western thought in a constructive manner, especially the evolutionary sciences and Western philosophy. Edelman has argued for a discussion between Hindu thought and the evolutionary sciences, one that respects the autonomy and value of multiple perspectives in the ongoing discovery of our world. Jonathan is currently working on ethics in the Gaudiya Vaishnava tradition and the definitions of the three yogas, karma, jnana, and bhakti. Some long-term plans involve making the Bhagavad Gita's commentarial tradition more accessible to students and scholars, evaluating various Western reductive theories of mind and consciousness in conversation with Hindu conceptions of self, as well as translating the writings of Vishvanatha Chakravartin. So with that, hello, Jonathan. Thanks so much for joining me. Hello. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Yeah, it's a pleasure to talk to you today. I've really enjoyed uh, reading your recent book, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. But before sure. we do, I would love to just hear a little bit about your own personal story and what has led you to the work that you do. Um, I mean, practically speaking, I started to get interested in Indian thought and philosophy and literature and sort of the life of the mind, I, I guess, um, around 17, 18 years old, okay. I started, I had to read Henry David Thoreau mm. for my English literature class, Mr. Potts. Um, <laughs> he made us read Thoreau, which was, uh, you know, in retrospect, that was a very, uh, uh, a great thing that he did for me. And at the, the first reading of Thoreau, we had to read Economy, which is his first chapter in Walden. It's dense. It's difficult writing. It's it's um, it's literature, <clears throat> but it grew on me. There was something about it that really um, resonated very deeply with me. I, I liked the, how he thought about language and how he um, how he expressed himself. But more as I got kind of 18, 19 years old, I got more interested in sort of the lifestyle that he he took up. And also, uh, he introduced me to books like the Bhagavad Gita. Right. Um, and as I was turning about 18, I just graduated high school, <clears throat> starting to think about what I wanted to do with my life. Um, I started reading books like the Bhagavad Gita, and, um, and that brought me into the Sanskrit language and um, and get, it brought me in touch with Hindu communities in the United States and in England and eventually even in India. And then when I started my undergraduate degree in philosophy, um, I had sort of a lot of Thoreau sort of my back, back of my mind. Um, and kind of sort of midway through my, my BA in philosophy, I actually uh, became much more interested in the study of religion. Mm -hmm. I think that's I think that's really what I wanted 
Um, and I didn't quite know at that age what Western philosophy would look like. Yeah. Um, Did you think it would have some kind of spiritual component that you were sort of seeking? I thought it, I thought it might. Mm. Um, and I think my interest gravitated more towards uh, what we would now, I would call the philosophy of religion or theology and right. textual study. But really uh, what I think I didn't, I should have known, but I didn't know at the time is that Western philosophy would be, philosophy would be Western yeah. philosophy. And there was really nobody in the department, um, this was in Santa Barbara, that really knew hardly anything about Indian philosophy. And the few times that I did bring it up, um, it was not dismissed, but it was clearly seen as something not really worthy of, of too much time or, or effort. Um, at the same time, religious uh, religious studies was thriving. It still is thriving at, at uh, UC Santa Barbara. And so I got to know some of the religious studies scholars, Barbara Holdridge, Alan Wallace, who's a great scholar of Buddhism, was there at the time, his wife, Vesna Wallace, and, and a few others. And um, so it was a, I was moving. By the time I was like a junior, I spent most of my time in religious studies. Mm. and talking with people in religious studies and um and that's that's the the direction that I went for for graduate work well there's definitely a, i mean the knowing that you had this kind of background of philosophy i feel like has really enriched your work i mean reading the book that we're going to talk about shortly uh, you can there's definitely a philosophical kind of um uh component to it with which i think enriches um what you're doing how do you feel like philosophy uh, contributes to your work today do you feel like you found this kind of seam seamless connection between religion and philosophy for you or do you still um you know butt up against these sort of I, I guess, sort of um, departmental or institutionalized ways of separating the two? No, it's it's actually been really a good, uh, I found a good spot, I can say like that. Yeah. Um, and I think the term theology, it came to encompass a lot of what I was thinking, the way I thought about things. And for me, theology is um, a serious approach to a textual tradition in Hinduism, it pays a, a tremendous amount of attention to the language of Sanskrit texts, but it's this, I like the side of it that is very much um, a rational engagement with a historical tradition. And I've been able to, to find that in religious studies. Um, religious studies as it's construed in um, America, uh, for the most part, has tried to separate itself from theology. Yeah. Yeah. And for me, that's been the real the real but yeah. uh, and not in a not necessarily a bad way um, or it's been it's been a p potential source of conflict. But yeah. it's never really been a conflict. But it's something that I think about and I'm, I'm aware of mm -hmm. um, that religious studies in America is uh, it's it's simply not theology. Right. And it is. Um, and the motivation behind that separation is that. Uh, is that the religious studies departments are trying to approach religion from a sort of so-called objective standpoint, whereas theology is more, um, I, I don't know, a religiously imminent position from which someone is is articulating the philosophy or the theology? Is that kind of the, are those the stakes? 
There's a there's a long history to it, and it's um, it's changed over time, and there's a slightly different story depending on who you talk to. But I think yeah. those broad cate- categories are mostly correct. That religious studies is uh, is something that non-believers do. Right. It's you don't believe and or engage or practice the religion that you study. And there are other modalities. There's a wide range of modalities for study in religious studies that theology wouldn't have. Whereas theology, more or less, it presupposes some type of connection yeah. with the tradition, although I think it can be construed in a, a wide variety of, of different ways, and there's different ways to be connected with a religion. Um, and theology is is more monolithic in the way that it approaches texts um, and, and approaches the study of religion. It's more text-based and more historically grounded and more constructive and things like that. Okay. All right, so let's talk a little bit about your book, which is called Hindu Theology and Biology, the Bhagavata Purana and Contemporary Theory. And I have to say, you know, when I first saw the title of this book, first of all, I, to me, the question of religion and science is a really fascinating one. And, yeah. and so I was so happy that you did this book. But it, it, at first, it seemed rather odd. I mean, one would yeah. not put biology and the Bhagavata Purana in the same sentence necessarily. So, you know, it's at once seemingly odd and then also quite radical and that you're, you know, bringing this theological text, the Bhagavata Purana, into a discussion um, with biology. So, so first of all, you know, what is the Bhagavata Purana for people out there who don't know this text? And then can you talk about what your inspiration was behind writing this book? Sure. Thanks. Um, So the Bhagavata Purana, I, I feel is probably composed somewhere in the 10th, uh, 11th century. Um, it was put together at that time. I feel there's no there's no evidence of it prior to that. Right. Put it that way. Um, imp- empirical, historical, uh, documental evidence. Um, it's a massive book. I mean, that's one way of <laughs> of putting it. It's it's divided into twelve separate books. Each one has many chapters. There's many, many commentaries on it. Among the Puranas, it is by far the most commented upon by uh, people in, San- in the Sanskrit language. Hmm. It was early on also translated in- into other Indian languages. Um, and it took on Im- almost immediately in a, a pretty important status. And since that time, it's, it's grown um, such that people who were also commenting on sort of the other big big names in Hindu philosophy and theology, such as the Upanishads, the Bhagavad Gita, the Brahma Sutra, and so forth, also started to pay a lot of attention to this book, the Bhagavata Purana. And at this point, it's it's considered one of the many important things that you should think about and read. Um, and it's it's mainly centered on the the worship of Krishna, devotion to Krishna. It's got um, strong philosophical or Vedantic or theological components to it. It discusses a lot about rasa, mm-hmm. um, this this great term in Indian aesthetics. Um, and the things that I focused on in my book, it also has a tremendous amount to say about the nature of embodied consciousness, mm-hmm. uh, the self, sort of ordinary awareness, um, its relationship with different parts of the material reality, the the physical world, the mental world, a lot about its origin, what we would call Sankhya and and yoga, 
and um, it's it's deeply interested in giving a characterization of how the world comes about, how biological life comes about, and sort of fitting um, its own theology into a larger, um, quote-unquote, scientific and psychological context uh, that, that would have been familiar to people and would have represented kind of the highest or one of the highest sort of um, philosophical and cosmological understandings of its of its time. Hmm. And that that's really where the, the connection that I saw was. That is the, the features of biology that I I focus on are, are more um, philosophy of mind, consciousness, um, evolutionary theory, sort of the origin of of the body and, and ultimately the mind and um, and what we can say about who we are and what our place is and the basis of uh, sort of empirical empirical studies. That, that that continued that continues to be uh, something that I think a lot about um, yeah mm. so just to kind of uh, because you know I'm I'm not as familiar with this text as I am with for example the Bhagavad Gita which is mm-hmm. often presented as you know the other you know main Vaishnava Bhakti text yeah. so what how does um, that text you know for someone who's trying to kind of understand is there is there a strong distinction in the character between these two texts. Like, what is what? Are, what are the essential differences between these two, um, from your perspective? I, th- I think they're in in many ways very similar. Okay. Um, some of the big differences are the size, the detail. You know, the Bhagavad Gita yeah. is eighteen shortish chapters, and this is many many hundreds and hundreds of, of chapters. Bhagavatam is many hundreds and hundreds of chapters. Um, the the extensive discussion on rasa, the extensive cosmological features, the extent this the extent to which the Bhagavata is also uh, bringing in um, other literature. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a mini Ramayana in the Bhagavata Purana. There's a whole discussion about um, sort of people that would be known in a Vedic context like Ritra. Mm. Um, so. Th- the detail and level of engagement with what we might call sort of mythology or, or narrative is is much greater. Yeah. Um, the there is um, this, some of the similarities are uh, a, a similar engagement between the Bhagavad Gita and in the uh, the Bhagavata Purana, an engagement with concepts such as dharma, yeah. the older Vedic sacrifices and how bhakti fits in with that. And I think by the time the Bhagavad, Bhagavata Purana gets composed, um, there's some differences there. Um, and there's uh, b- between the two texts, and, but there's, there's a lot one could say about, about that. But, but overall, I, I do think that there's, there's a, there are similarities, even though there are, there are some big differences too. Yeah, and so the Bhagavata Purana is a later text. Yeah. Okay. So the the Gita would be, I don't know. Um, it's part of the Mahabharata, and it's considered part of the older part of the Mahabharata as much as two thousand five hundred years ago. Mm-hmm. Mm. Okay. So then, what was you know what? This is such a specific conversation, you know, biology mm-hmm. and the theology of the Bhagavata Purana. So, what was your inspiration? 
besides yeah. just a scholarly interest, there does seem to be a kind of a polemical inspiration as well behind what yes, you're doing yes. here. So can you talk a little bit more about that specifically? Sure. That, so I, I, this book is, it's kind of, I wrote it in kind of a different life. <laughs> um, a lot has changed with me since I, I finished it. Okay. And um, sort of the me that started it and finished it is, is a little bit different than the me that's now. But the, the beginnings of it really were Thoreau, mm -hmm. who had this, uh, he, um, and he cared about nature. Yeah. He, he really was in nature and this interest in what is nature. And, and near the end of his life, he was a, a scholar of nature. He really wanted to study the seasons and the plant and tree life and growth and the, the movements of, of water in his region. So he was really interested in the minutiae. But then more practically speaking, it was a fellow named uh, Alan Wallace, who was the, the husband of, of Vesna Wallace, both of whom taught at UC Santa Barbara. And he'd be a, they'd both be very interesting people to have on here. Okay. But when I was maybe a sophomore, I had a, a roommate who was a little bit older than me, and he was taking a class with Alan Wallace. And he said, oh, you really got to go in and check this class out. He's really... And I heard his, I went in, I attended his lecture, and then as I became like a, a junior or a senior, I took this class he took he taught called Science and Religion, and it was really very in, interesting to me. Mm. And he um, he's a Buddhist, and he now runs uh, sort of a Buddhist um, meditation center, but it's also a think tank, and he, he does a lot of writing and pract he brings in practitioners, and he's respected by Buddhist monks and by Buddhist scholars to, to a certain degree. Um, but, you know, he was dealing with issues in philosophy of mind. He was looking at Buddhist philosophy. And I thought, yeah, that's that's what I want to do. I want to do that with Hindu texts and traditions. Um, and then, so as I was applying to graduate school, um, I just saw, I could just, it was, I think this was probably even before the internet was something I used a lot of. This was probably 1999, 2000. I might have gotten a flyer or a leaflet that, that Oxford University was now teaching a course, a master's course, dedicated to science and religion. Wow. And the person that was teaching it at the time, John Brooke, his specialty was uh, late 19th century, early 20th century Darwinian philosophy and its relationship with theology. Wow. <laughs> So I applied and I, I, I got in and, and, and in fact, he was visiting Santa Barbara as I was applying. He just happened to be there to give what turned out to be a, a very popular and distinguished lecture at uh, UC Santa Barbara. So I had the opportunity to meet, to meet him. I got admitted to the program. I was super excited. Yeah. And when I got to Oxford, it was a, it was a, a very, very uh, rich and vibrant environment and there was a tremendous amount of work being done on science and religion and i think it was expected that i would find a very specific niche to work in and i think i could have only written the books what you know i wrote the dissertation that became the book there um i think i could have only done it there because of um all the resources that it provided yeah um and that's why I kind of jump into what seems like a very specific thing about a very general topic, you know, science and religion, Hinduism and science, and it ends up being this very detailed uh, study of, of it. 
Yeah, yeah, it's beautiful. Now, you know, talking about science and religion, this amazing program that you did, one thing I actually really liked about your introduction is the way that you discuss the idea of science and religion as being these kind of essentialized categories that, you know, are abstracted from the the scientists and the religionists themselves. And then this becomes, you know, this this strange abstract idea of science in conflict with religion and you sort of problematize that. So I'm wondering if you could kind of rehash that that a little bit and talk about um, that because I think that's a really important point that it's often lost. Yeah, so John, this was John Brooks' major contribution and why he got this uh, this professorship at Oxford mm-hmm. um, was his, his book, written in 1991, where he argues solely from the Western tradition. He, he, he himself had not worked at all in India or China or other contexts at that time. But he argued persuasively, meticulously, in a very detailed way that the way that these terms, science and religion, are used over the course of Western intellectual history, it cha- they change. Yeah. Um, and great scientists and great theologians, they have their own unique ways that they they divided up these terms, that they related them and that they thought about them. And he made more general point that when we want to talk about the relationship of science and religion, we should ourselves try to get away from this idea that these are these distinct things like they're rocks, you know. Yeah. They're things you can point to. No. They're concepts, they're models that um, that human beings create and use. And the way that they've created them and used them change over time. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why we were able to work together so well, because he had this very capacious model. And at the same time, also very detailed. He was very textually oriented. Um, and that became the approach that I that I took. Let's let's get away from thinking about you know big narratives about this is science, that's religion, um, and let's get into the details of the text. Um, and let's also realize that the way that we're engaging with the text has very much to do with who we are as as individuals, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that's just a fact or a truism about about how um, the whole discipline works of science and religion. Yeah. So, and one of the things you sort of brought up in that conversation was how you know this the 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 concept of religion often gets um, when when people are sort of invoking that term, it's often you know saturated with all of these connotations that are really the inheritance of our Western religious narratives, and those don't quite fit the the kind of the worldview of of what we might call Eastern religion, and yeah. and that and that by and and that by kind of throwing out these concepts or not letting them sort of dictate you know the rules of engagement that it then opens up the possibility of this of this conversation that you then offer throughout the book. Yeah. So um, one thing that I want to talk about before we get into the details of the book is that you one thing that I really liked that I thought was interesting is that you talk about in the introduction, a new kind of Hindu theology, which has three main objectives. And I won't get into the objectives, but what I thought was what stood out to me is that you you described this as being different from, for example, 
popular forms of media in Hinduism, the teachings of contemporary Hindu religious leaders, Indology, and discussions of Hinduism as it is currently performed in religious studies and Indian philosophy. And I thought, yeah. wow, I mean, that's sort of everybody. <laughs> right. Yeah. So can can you talk, you know, can you talk about why you felt it necessary to carve out a different way of doing Hindu theology? Right. And since I've written that, things have changed. I can say that. Okay. Um, the the distinctions that I wanted to draw were and the, the sort of big pools of people, okay, if we wanted to think about the types of people that engage with Hinduism. There's different groups you can, you can form. Um, Indology has been America's oldest sort of approach. Yeah. Um, the oldest academic society in the United States is the American Oriental Society. Um, it goes way back. Yeah. The oldest society period? The oldest uh, continuing academic society. Wow. In the United States, the American Oriental Society. They still run a journal. It's a fantastic journal. They still have an annual conference. It's a fantastic conference. And it was born out of a sort of classic classics type of approach yeah. where there's an interest in philology, um, historical linguistics, grammar, um, so on and so forth. And that is, that's a, it's a wonderful discipline. Um, it's rigorous. It's, um, it, to, to master it is, you know, it's an accomplishment. Um, but it, it, it's not interested in thinking about how ancient texts apply to contemporary issues. That's not what they do. Um, and when I do Indology, and I've written Indological articles, and I'm interested in it as a field, it's also not what I do when I do that. Religious studies, on the other hand, um, might draw from Indology, but it, it has this component that is less interested, for the most part, in thinking about the tradition philosophically um, from a from a practitioner's point of view, as we, as we we discussed. Yeah. Um, Western philosophy, uh, there are things that are changing now, and things have changed since I wrote that book, uh, both in my own life and um, and just the world in general. Um, Western philosophy mainly deals with sort of Aristotle and Plato onward. Um, so, and then you have popular Hindu temple worship, and there's all kinds of classes going on in that context. There's yoga, and there's people connected with with that. But the connection between sort of an indological type of approach, where you have the same scrutiny and, and rigor that an indologist would have as you apply it, you know, applying it to texts, and also thinking about it philosophically, um, the way a Western philosopher would sort of think those two things haven't have rarely gone together now there are there are major exceptions to that um so what i'm sorry if indology is not looking at texts it's looking at what cultural artifacts like what is so the... indology is the in examination of texts oh indology is for some reason I, I thought you were saying that indology is not the close examination of texts it is indology oh, okay. that that sorry yeah indology is here's an ancient text I learn, I master its language, I understand it in its historical context through... So it's, so it's a philological kind of... Philological, yep. Okay, it's a philological approach. Okay, great. Mm -hmm. And religious studies will sometimes incorporate parts of that, but it's less text-based, and religious studies has become more focused on living cultures and um, 
more like anthropology and sociology. That's mm -hmm. a strong trend. Mm -hmm. So there's a way in which the, the religious studies can kind of turn their object of study into an artifact rather than engaging with the liveliness of its ideas? That's, that's one way of thinking about it, yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. so, and religious yeah, studies, I might also add, for the most part, doesn't take a stand on the truth or falsity of the thing that it studies. Right. Whereas Western philosophy is all about truth. Yeah. You know, is Plato right in his theory of ideas? Is Kant right in his, uh, his theory of mind and perception? Those are the, the, the questions that um, a philosopher would be concerned with. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and you, you don't see that as much in, in Indology or in religious studies. Mm -hmm. So questions of truth or falsity as they apply to the Hindu tradition um, in a truth or falsity in a philosophical sense is, is not a discipline that I'm aware of. Mm -hmm. Mm. There are people that have started to do this and have done this, but it's not a formed discipline. Yeah. Now, is there, I'm just sort of thinking as we're talking about this of the possible pushback from, you know, what are maybe conservative political forces in India or elsewhere that are, that are resistant to this idea of bringing into conversation at all uh, because there's this sense that this is sort of, I don't know, some kind of imperialist or colonialist project to, to allow the, the, the ideas, the, the integrity of the ideas of the Indian tradition be polluted by an engagement with Western thought or something like that. Um, maybe you can speak on that more eloquently than yeah. I can, but what, you know, what are your thoughts on sort of that um, pushback and how can we do this in a way that is sensitive to these kind of cultural appropriation arguments and the ones that are, you know, worthy of being um, paid attention to? I think... The things that you mentioned about cultural appropriation and some of the, the Hindutva trends and issues of identity, identity politics, we might even say, those are those are major obstacles today. Yeah. Um, there's there's this concern that if you're Hindu, you're Hindutva, as yeah. sort of nationalistic, fundamentalistic sort of approach. Um, there's also pushback among some Hindus and Indians that, you know, it's, it's simply not the right of Western white scholars, yeah. uh, to make a truth claim. You know, you've already taken over our yoga and, uh, our music and our art and our dance. And, and now you're, you're messing with our, our history, our intellectual history and, um, it's you simply don't have um, you don't have the right to to make evaluations of what what our people thought. You know, it's if you want to talk about what Shankara said, please do it well. But you know, was Shankara right or wrong? Was he was he good or bad in, as a philosopher, as a theologian? That's that's not your it's not your position to say those those types of things. I think that those are challenges that we face today, and um, there were other challenges in in the past. Mm. Yeah, and I think it's something very distinct about Hinduism. It's not as big an issue when in the study of Buddhism. 
for example. Yeah, well, and it's also interesting because it seems like there was within, you know, the history of the intersection of Hinduism and and the West, there was definitely a kind of evangelist sort of like, you know, export the tradition and with, with Vivekananda and people like that. So it seems interesting, you know, and obviously we're in a different political climate, of course. Um, if I might just say something about Vivekananda, though, um, he was really the first Hindu to do that. Yeah. Okay. To cross the ocean and to come and speak in a new language to a new group of people to make a really concerted effort to do that. Mm -hmm. He was one of the first people, whereas Buddhism had already very actively exported itself for a very long time. I see. It had already, you know, there were Buddhists going up into, crossing over the Himalayas, going into China and Japan and Thailand. Um, and so they had already uncoupled itself from any sort um, of geogra geographical right, location. Right, mm -hmm. Whereas Hinduism had for a very long time been primarily something that Indians did. And it had moved, it had certainly spread, um, but not to the same degree mm -hmm. and not in the same ways that Buddhism had spread. And I think there's a sense in which the uncoupling of Indianness and Hinduness is something that is really just kind of starting. Oh fairly recently. And if you take Vivekananda 18, was it 93 in Chicago, his first talk there, I think it was 1893 or 1896. If you take that as sort of the beginning point, and you know, we're just over 100 years past that, from a historical point of view, it's really not too long. Yeah. Hmm. Huh, That's I my... It's my latest thought on, on this yeah, issue. Yeah, I mean, it's it's something that I don't think anybody that I've talked to about this issue has ever sort of brought up, and it's and it makes total sense to think that there, you know, there yeah, there's historical precedent for Buddhism, but within the Hindu tradition, yeah, you're right, it's it's fairly recent. So, so it's sort of like it's in that sense, it's understandable that there would be some kind of backlash, as there is any time there's kind of a new um, you know transmission of ideas across cultures, I suppose. Right. Right. So, um, so let's talk a little bit about the book because you know we still haven't kind of talked about anything sure. um, specific in terms of the uh, like the philosophical arguments, which I think are really interesting. Um, so I'm going to do the best I can here. <laughs> uh, uh, as and I didn't uh, unfortunately I didn't have time to get through the entire book, although I'm planning on going back and reading the rest because I did find it very interesting. But one thing that you mentioned, um, and maybe we can just use this as kind of a doorway into a wider conversation, is that you mentioned that, you know, the reason that, for example, Darwin and Dawkins, you know, Richard Dawkins, this new, new right. atheist, can say evolution reveals a universe without design is because their notion of the God doing that design hinges on this idea of God as the watchmaker, which you bring up, um, which... Um, is ultimately a kind of Judeo-Christian idea of God. And so you say in this section that there are other ideas of God and nature that yeah. you know, perhaps wouldn't fall into the same trap. Um, and, and I remember even reading it, I, I was like thinking about how Someone brought, I was listening to some, you know, scientists talk about, you know, design isn't there because we've got these meaningless traits that are just continuing on. And, and why would a designer design that if it's not necessary to the organism, blah, 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 blah. So there's sort of this mind, uh, you know, not conscious development or evolutionary trajectory. Um, so, you know, what are the ideas of God and nature 
that you unpack in the book that are that are sort of answering these um, these uh, arguments. Yeah, I'm afraid maybe I, I promised a bit more than I was able to deliver in that particular <laughs> book, and I continue to to think about um, the Bhagavata and the Gaudiya concept of God. Um, but what I wanted to do in that book and what I was hoping to accomplish with that that statement is to, to enter a sort of a new way of uh, framing the discussion. And I'm partly responding to Bhaktivedanta Swami, who I mentioned, and somebody, I, I, a tradition I engage with, I never met him, he passed away in 1977, but the tradition he started, I, I was engaging with. Um, the, the thing that, that I saw happening there, and I, I've seen happen quite a bit with discussions between Hinduism and Western traditions, is a sort of a very quick appropriation of other people's problems and other people's issues. Um, and that's what I wanted to separate. Like, here is how Darwin talked about and thought about God and how Dawkins has read and interpreted him, and here's how people have responded to both of them. Um, those are important things to know, but there's a sense in which Hinduism, it's not, it's not, it's a different discussion. And yeah. there are going to be some overlaps there. Um, but we have to establish those overlaps in, in very different sorts of ways. And I think what I tried to argue in the book, what I, what I did argue in, in my, in, in this book is that this issue between the world being designed or not designed is that's not, that's not the issue. Mm-hmm. When we're talking about um, about God and its relationship with nature, um, and the issue in the Bhagavata is this sort of yogic engagement with nature. It's thinking about the natural world in a sophisticated, almost analytic, uh, sort of ontological, philosophical way that creates, it becomes an object of contemplation and consideration. And uh, that's what I found in the text, that when it talks about these different sciences, it's talking them about them in, the, in a larger yogic context, in a yogic language, um, one in which design's just not, it's not the issue. Mm-hmm. But what then, is, I mean, but for those that are, you know, captivated by this idea of design, then mm-hmm. what is the, I mean, I understand you're saying it's not the issue, but what, how does it, how, do, how is it situated then within a kind of theological understanding that's inspired by the Bhagavata Purana? I think there's, there's just different concepts. You have to bring in a different cosmology. Okay. Um, so let's bring it in. <laughs> yeah. So first of all, karma. Mm. is you can't deny karma theory pervading everything. And the reason we are the way that we are is because of our karma. Yeah. And suffering. The fact that the world is a, a place of suffering. They're almost... Karma and samsara are their twin concept. They, they go together. And suffering, dukkha, the nature that all of the world is a place of suffering, is, is practically speaking built into the concept of, of samsara. Um, and that's some of the things I allude to and I start to develop at the, at the end of the book and I want to develop further. Um, namely that the, 
the issue of design um, has a lot to do in, in the Western context with a failure of design. Yeah. Right? A lot of the, the biological structures that we have are, they've just been passed on. Mm-hmm. Not because uh, all of them were the, the very best thing at the very best context, just because they were passed on and they were select, they were, they were grouped up with other things and they were selected um, for a particular environment, but then we might move into a, a, a new environment. And so the things that we, we have from our evolutionary history may not be necessarily properly and well-suited to the, the position that we're in geographically right now, for example. Um, well, you might think about that in terms of karma. Um, that the body that we have is not, it's not, um, it's not designed, so to speak. It's not, there's no intention behind it being perfect and properly and well suited to the world. It's, of course, it's, it's going to be full of, of, of flaws, um, and, and full of problems. That's, you know, it, the world is necessarily like that um and that the world is not um perfect and ideal would be something that i think someone would expect from a just a broad indian karma theory context that's that's point one the the other point that i want to develop is that um the the bhagavata's view is that God, sort of Ishvara or the Lord or Bhagavan or Krishna, is not actually, in fact, directly involved with the details of the world. It's it's passed over to a, a sort of a regular, regular soul, mm-hmm. a fellow named Brahma, and he's sort of in charge of making the world, and he himself has got limited capacities. He's not not that all-knowing God. So I'm not saying that there really is a Brahma or not. That's not my my view. I don't I don't know. <laughs> no. But my point is that um, from this Indian Hindu point of view, yeah, it's not God that's making the world. In terms of the details of the the structures of things, God is only on this Hindu view sort of the underlying ground of being that makes there a world at all, and sort of creates the power and energy that allows for this sort of ever-changing world to even be there. Mm-hmm. How and what is done with that um, is up to the people that are in that world. It's governed by karma. Um, and therefore, since the people that are in it are themselves imperfect, sort of messy creatures, the world that they create themselves in, in some ways, that create themselves in, in one level, is also, it's not well planned. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's not well designed. It doesn't seem to be well thought out. It doesn't have this telos that many um, pre-Darwinian thinkers thought it should have, this sort of clear plan from, you know, here's our, here's our starting point and here's our goal you know, 10,000 or a million years or a billion years later, let's get there in a nice, clean, easy way. No, the world, I think, from a Hindu point of view, wouldn't exhibit those features. It's, there's something inherently chaotic about it and um, sort of messy. Mm, mm. 
So in, in chapter three, you go into an, a, a fairly elaborate epistemological discussion and you explored you know, what constitutes knowledge in the Hindu and Western, Hindu tradition and the Western scientific tradition. Um, but what I found really interesting was uh, when you mentioned that the Bhagavata begins by inviting the reader to drink the rasa of its words, rasa yeah. meaning an aesthetic experience of the divine. So can you talk about aesthetic experience as a means of knowledge and how, you know, because this doesn't seem to be a, an epistemology that sort of um, has a lot of uh, tread in Western science, you know, this like aesthetic understanding of something as being um, a means of knowledge. So can you talk a little bit right. about that? Yeah, I think the this particular tradition's interest in science would have to have something to do with rasa. Yeah. Um, and rasa being an aesthetic delight, and it's an, it's an aesthetic experience of a text. Um, you know, Rupa Goswami's book on the Bhagavata Purana, which is the, the Gaudiya Vaishnava's main um, author with regard to, to rasa, is the Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu. He says the devotee experiences rasa by hearing mm -hmm. the text, by reading, engaging, thinking about, and studying the the text. And so I began to think about, you know, science as a form of literature and science as um, something that people engage with and, and love as a, as a form uh, of, um, of literature. And I myself was at the time reading Darwin and really loving it and finding it to be there's something uh, enjoyable, enjoyable about reading really good science um, and having um, or having a really good conversation with the scientist who's informing you about the nature of the world in which we live. Mm. Um that's also, it's also a form of knowledge and the sense is something that we, we know. Mm -hmm. It's not this uh, more of the sort of analytic uh, knowledge that we, we generally associate with, with science, but it is, um, it is knowledge in the sense that we, we know something about the world and we're delighting and ex experience a, a sense of, of joy upon learning about, about the world. And that's, that's kind of where my, my interest in science is at this point is um it's like a form of meditation almost yeah it's a form of meditation it's something beautiful yeah and of course science is not always beautiful yeah it also tells us very dark uh terrible things about the world yeah um but that's also that's also a form of rasa right well and also i mean with the dark you know i'm thinking of the I'm thinking of the expression of Krishna, his like all, I don't know, what is the name of that presence of Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita where yeah. it's so yeah, overwhelming. Yeah, the Vishnu Rupa sometimes is called or the Virat yeah, is where it's, the favorite term in the Bhagavata. Where it's like terrifying and overwhelming. Yeah. Um, so with that kind of experience, that kind of rasa of science that does sort of resonate in a more, I don't know, terrifying or dark way would you kind of map that onto that sort of understanding of the divine? Yeah, that's one way of doing it. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, exactly. That's, um, it's, it's one aspect of, of the world and uh, sort of God's presence in the world. That's, it's kind of terrible. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And that's it's just part of our world. Yeah. You know, Which animals, is hard. the animal kingdom is a terrible place. It's also very beautiful. But it's also a very terrible place. And in the human world as well, we've created, you know. I know. I can't watch planet Earth. I just can't watch all those yeah. little all those little lizards getting eaten. <laughs> <laughs> right. um, but I mean, you know, I like this conversation. I had a recent, <clears throat> very different <clears throat> conversation with, with Vera de Chalambert recently where, you know, she was talking about current, po- the current political climate, for example, you know, being a very dark one, but also that being a manifestation of the divine. And how do we cultivate a recognition of this as, you know, she was thinking about it in terms of the mother and, and the dark, this, she used this term of the dark mother. And so I hear that here and in in this, this continuing theme of, of, of being able to witness the divinity of things that are dark or unfortunate or, or that we otherwise in our kind of like, you know, more dualistic understanding of, of divinity would want to kind of purge from identification with the absolute right because we want to like keep the absolute as this sort of like you know absolute goodness and light and there's nothing dark about it whereas you know what the work you're doing here seems to be offering this this possibility of you know something less um discriminatory in that way that's i think one of the there's a sense in which we we know this in the west i mean horror is a genre of film yeah for example or literature and, um, you know, even, you know, political movies that are about the very terrible things, there's something, the ones that are done really well, they're also very beautiful. Yeah. Shakespeare, for example, a lot of what is going on is, it's terrible. But it's... Yeah, people die at the end every time. Right. People, <laughs> it's, it's um, uh, but he's brought it to the, to the stage of, of, uh, Brought it to the stage in a way that you, um, there's a way in which you enjoy it. Yeah. There's like a rapturous enjoyment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, I think, what um, Rasa theory is about, and the Bhagavata itself is, a, is about um, trying to, to find uh, the, the Rasa in even the terrible things. Yeah. yeah. That's an aspect of it. And, and science it's got to fit into that in some way because it, it deals with disease and death and <clears throat> horror. Yeah. Yeah. But what about the, you know, the argument from, from scientists that, that it's all that, the, that there's no, how am I, how do I articulate this question? That the, that what science is sort of illustrating or what science is showing is that there is no meaning behind any of it. There is no, there is no God because there is no, um, uh, there, you know, there is no hand of design. We can see that. Um, and so, uh, I, I don't know if you're, I, I, I think I, I think I see where you're going. I see where it's, I'm going. <laughs> I do. And my, my reply to it is it, the ultimate at this point in my life, and I would say it, it doesn't matter mm. if there's a God or not and what happens after death or not. If you're a scientist, you love science. Mm-hmm. And, there's, and you, you probably love the things that, studies, that, study, that sciences, the sciences study, namely the, the natural world, broadly speaking. Isn't that enough that we take 
uh, joy and the things that we produce, the literature and the theories that we produce as we go about studying and thinking about the world. Um, you know, you don't you don't necessarily have to believe in God or not believe in God to find the theory of evolution beautiful, majestic, encompassing. And you don't have to believe in God or not believe in God to, to think about the world through an evolutionary point of view and find that to be enriching to yourself. Mm -hmm. Now, I understand that, but I mean, how, if, if it doesn't matter, then what's the inspiration behind cultivating a, a relationship of devotion or bhakti with Krishna or any other, you know, murti? Why, you know, if... How can I hold in the same space the idea that it all doesn't matter with the same con with the conviction that there's something you know there's something to be gained by this relationship yeah. with with God? It's a very good question. I think it's a different question, though. I think okay. it it operates in a different space, um, and it's it it deals with sort of a, a different different reality mm -hmm. um, more directly. It hinges upon a different reality more directly. Um, for for me, uh, bhakti is about, uh, and this is where I, I maybe differ from some of my my colleagues or some of my friends who are also into to bhakti traditions. For me, the love that one should have for God and sort of the joy that one takes in being with God cannot and should not be something different than the rest of one's reality. Um, and that means one's friends, family, society, culture, everything about that's around, around one. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's where I, I bring it. That's where I bring the two together. Um, is God, something that really does exist after death and you're going to go there and is Krishna really a God that sort of I'll walk up to and shake his hand and give him a hug someday. <laughs> um, that's a great idea. That's all I can say. Yeah. Um, what a beautiful idea. Mm. Krishna, beautiful fellow, beautiful, very blue girlfriends and, and wives and, loving parents, lives in this beautiful town, this sort of a suburban sort of place in Vrindavan with rivers and uh, trees, and it's just wonderful. And what a great idea of God. Um, does that God really exist? Uh, I'm not that... Uh, I'll, I'll wait and see. I think it's, to me, that's really what theology is, is like, here's, a, here's what could be. Yeah. Yeah. And this is maybe where I differ from a lot of theologians as well. But for me, theology is just like, here's a possibility of what could be. And it should be a beautiful thing. And I think that's what Gaudiya Vaishnavism offers is here's a really beautiful vision of God. Mm -hmm. um, but does that God really exist or not? Um, it, it doesn't necessarily change my day to day life. Mm hmm. It shouldn't necessarily change my day-to-day -day life. Um, I think I still want to live as if that God might exist, 
mm-hmm. and try to bring as much sort of love and beauty into my life that I possibly can. Mm-hmm. So I understand you, you're a scholar practitioner, correct? So you have, would you consider yourself a, a bhakti practitioner? Yes, but in a very different way than I think most of my colleagues would, would define bhakti. Okay. Um, and, and, and in those ways. For me, um, bhakti is just, it's a form of love. Yeah. And the love and the way that I relate with, uh, you know, my family, that's also bhakti. My, my community, that's also bhakti. Um, my, my scholarship and my writing, that's also bhakti. Mm-hmm. Um, do I actually go to temples and, and do um, those, the, what we would call sadhanas, you know, yeah. going to temples and, and chanting and doing things like that? No, hardly not at all. <laughs> Hardly not at all. <laughs> so does 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 the image or the murti of Krishna play a role at all in your sort of understanding of your practice as a bhakti? Uh, it does, but it's to me it's a beautiful image. Mm-hmm. So it's more. And I, it's I more respect about, it, and I, I I I love it. I think it's it's a great idea. Mm-hmm. These are great things that human beings produced. Right. I so it goes back to yeah. rasa. Yeah, it goes back it's, to the aesthetic experience that is cultivated by material things, mm-hmm. material things, images, texts, poems, philosophies, literatures. Yeah, music. Yeah, is there anything beyond that for me? I don't. Nobody knows. That's my real view. Mm-hmm. As I know, that's reductionistic. And it's making a broad universal claim that could be wrong. But that's that is my hunch. Yeah. Well, and I think it also I think what's beautiful about it is that it what you're implying is that there is a way to be engaged and enriched by spiritual practice without needing to answer that question, without needing to have a clear answer. Is there or is there not a God? And I think that is a beautiful kind of radical. I think that the spiritual practice should itself be beautiful. It's something that you like. Yeah. That that enriches your, your your whole being, your physical body, your mind, your intellect, your understanding, everything. And that to me if it's not doing that, what's the point? Yeah. 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 So, um this has been really great and and we're sort of nearing the end of our uh um, time together, but I wanted to ask you a question related to this article, another article you had shared with me um, called The Cause of Devotion in, in Gaudiya Vaishnava Theology. Um, and the reason I wanted to ask this is because for me, you know, devotion or bhakti has never, I've always been more um, captivated by the experience of wonder, you know, when I have experiences of wonder, at, you know, I don't know, the cosmos or, or anything in, you know, existence, I feel like that is sort of a, a doorway for me into this experience of divinity. So, um, so I'm curious, uh, how, like, what are the causes of devotion? Is, is, is wonder a precondition for devotion in, in the bhakti tradition? And, and then and what is the role of this, um, is of shraddha or conviction, as you say, in this, um, movement towards bhakti. Right. And so this is one of the more sort of indological articles that I, I wrote. And it, it's, it's the beginning of my attempt to really take a focused attention to the Gaudiya tradition mm-hmm. as an idea. Um, 
and I've started to sort of think about what are their their doctrines, what are sort of their main theological tenets, and this is one of them, um, that, that bhakti, they want to argue that bhakti is something you get from other people. Right. You encounter another bhakta and you think, oh, that that sounds like a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then Shraddha is something that develops from that. Oh. Um, so you get the bhakti and then you develop the Shraddha. Yeah. You, you meet somebody, that person inspires you, mm-hmm. gets you thinking in a different way. I'm putting what they, in a sort of informal way, what they put in a fairly technical way. But you meet somebody, they inspire you, and you think, yeah, I'll, I'll, go, I'll go back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll meet that person again. Yeah. And then they start to tell you, well, if you're interested in this, this is what we do. It's what the tradition does. These are the practices that we engage in. These are the books we read. And you think, all right, sounds like a good idea. And that's what Shraddha is. It's this, for me, it's, it's generally translated as faith. And I think that that works. Again, I'm concerned about sort of what faith means to us. Right. Um, because it doesn't seem like the blind faith of Christianity. It right, seems and like that's, a different that's kind my of main faith. concern, is that when we think about faith in the West, and that, that may be just our, we're wrong about what faith is in the West, and I think right. that, that's got a big chunk of it. But nevertheless, it happens, and that's why I avoid using the word faith, mm-hmm. and I use a word like conviction, yeah. determination. Um, you, know, you think it's something you hold close to your heart, and you think this is a good idea. Yeah. Um, and that's that's where they think bhakti, that's where they argue bhakti could come from. And sort of behind all that, they have this very uh, big sort of metaphysical story that they're telling that bhakti is something totally fundamentally, absolutely 100% different than other forms of love. Like when you have bhakti, it's not like other forms of, of love. You're like jumping into an entirely different stream yeah. than ordinary love, which is generally encompassed by this word kama. Kama. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that might be where I end up really differing from them and, and thinking about things very uh, in a different way. But, I, but the principle of the idea that uh, religion and um, bhakti and these different uh, you know, spiritual traditions is something that you, you gain from other people, that makes a tremendous amount of sense to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't limit it to a, a face-to-face interaction, um, but you know, maybe it comes through books or through through music or um, recordings now of some type. Some type, but I, I do think that they're right about that. You want to become a spiritual person through association, through camaraderie, through fellowship with other people that that are like that. Yeah. That makes yeah. a lot of sense. Yeah. So now, lastly, <clears throat> because yeah. you brought it up earlier um, about being a different uh, Jonathan Edelman than you were when you wrote the book. So I'm just curious yeah. what things have changed in terms of, I don't know, your yeah. own conviction, your own priorities, in terms of what you're working on or how you see, how you, you know, yeah. look at these traditions. Yeah, that's a good question. So I think when I, when I wrote the book, I was... I was I was alone, and I still am mostly alone in doing that type of work. Okay. I've since found that there are, there are other people that have done it and are interested in doing it, but I found myself mainly uh, around 
Christian, Jewish, yeah. Islamic, and an occasionally occasional Buddhist, Buddhist groups. And there just simply were no people working in Hindu traditions doing this type of work. That I, I was always like the guy. I'd get invited to conferences, um, or I'd be on panels at conferences, and I. You're you know, the Hindu guy. I'm the Hindu guy. That's right. <laughs> there were the fellowships that I got participated in, and I kind of just got tired of. It's like there's a room full of Abrahamics and an occasional Buddhist. And then there's there's me. <laughs> they want to know something about Hinduism. They ask, oh, is Edelman know something? Um, and so I said, you know, I, I don't want to have a career based in that context. Yeah. And so I, I said, uh, so I had to, and I, I'm glad I did. And now I, now I work more with Sanskritists and people in religious studies and people doing Indian philosophy. And it's just a much bigger community of people. Yeah. Um, so it was a very conscious shift that I, I took. And before it was the science and religion people, is what you're saying? Right. Yeah. Okay. That's right. Right. And more theologically oriented mm -hmm. people. Um, and I guess I've also become, I guess, a bit more, ag the sort of view that I express about religion, a bit more ag agnostic and um, not, in a, not in a bad, it just, I, 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 I've, I think I'm, more humble now. Let me put it that way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> to brag a little bit, um, about I'm more humble about what I think I actually know. Yeah. About this life or the next. Um, and I'm much more sort of in the like I know a lot about what's around me right now and in front of me and um, larger questions of um, you know God's existence and. You know my own the eternal nature of my being um, I'm aware there are different systems of thought some of them seem more um, well composed than others some of them more some of them are more beautiful than others but um, really I think that's all that we have access to at this mm -hmm. point is mm -hmm. uh, the richness of ideas yeah about so about these larger questions so would you say that your uh, al alignment has moved away from theology? You sort of said you were hanging out with more theologically minded people. And now... No, I, I still consider myself really to be doing some type of theology, even though I'm in a religious studies department. Mm -hmm. um, and this, I, but I consider theology in the sense that uh, I'm, I'm taking these historical ideas seriously enough to think that they deserve my attention, they deserve the attention of other people, and they um, deserve the attention uh, in a way that that suggests that they have actually something meaningful and true yeah. to say about the world. Yeah. Um, it's, it's opening that possibility. They're not just historical artifacts, but they, they enrich, they can enrich uh, our understanding of the world today. Mm. Um, in that sense, I consider myself doing theology, um, a deep and abiding commitment to to the truth of them. I, as I said, I'm, I'm hopeful about some of them. I'm not hopeful about others. I mean, right? <laughs> you know, I don't. I don't I, I, you know, there's a sense in which I would not want the Christian God to be the God. Yeah, me neither. Um, <laughs> the Islamic God. That's I don't. 
the 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 go dia Vaishnava view of God. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Yeah, totally. Even Kashmir Shaiva, you know, Abhinav exactly. Gupta, that sounds great. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Well, and then the question becomes, you know, did the have the Christians actually got it right, or have they misinterpreted their own God, you know, over the years? That's right. Those are big. Yeah. So that's great. So what what's next on the agenda for you then? Are you are you going to be publishing uh, another manuscript anytime soon, or do you have? Um, Hopefully, um, yeah. right now I'm I'm really doing a lot of work on the Godias and reading yeah. a lot of their commentaries and especially. Uh, their larger intellectual context, especially someone named Sridhar Swami, mm. indebtedness to sort of Advaita Vedanta. Then there's the whole Kavya um, and Rasa theory, that that side of thing. People like Vopadev and Hemadri, um, who are uh, even predecessors of of Sridhar. I think those need to be those people need to be understood. Um, but then just trying to get a sense of the larger the details of their work and the larger corpus of literature that they wrote. And then this fellow, Vishwanath, I, I really have, um, he, he wrote uh, in Vrindavan and in uh, that area of Mathura in the early 1700s. I, I love his work. Um, I think he really put it all together in a, in, a, uh, in a way that his predecessors had not been able to. He was uh, about 150 years after people like Jiva Goswami and Rupa Goswami. Um, I, I, I believe he was like the first real Gaudiya Vaishnava theologian mm. in the sense that he grew up in the tradition. Yeah. He wasn't making it up as Rupa and Jiva and Sanatana were as they went along. Um, he inherited it and he had some time and, uh, to, to critically reflect on it and, so I really appreciate his work, but I think in order to read Vishwanath properly, you do have to go back to to Jiva and Rupa, and you have to go back to to Sridhara and Rasa theory, and if you go back to Vopadev and Bhagavata Purana and um, to read Shankara and Padmapada, a whole whole range of people like to get into their world. That's kind of what I've been doing the past five years, and that's mm. that's hopefully my next book will be about. So. This literature. Well, yeah, it sounds like that's a lot of material. Yeah. You've got a lot of work to do. <laughs> got a lot of work to do. Yeah, it's definitely well, it me busy. Yeah, well, I'll look yeah. forward to uh, to seeing it when it comes out. So thank you so much, Jonathan. This has been a real thank pleasure. Thank you. And, a pleasure. Um, I really appreciate it. Thank yeah, you. absolutely. So is there any, um, if anyone wants to kind of read more of your work, or I don't know if you do workshops. I know you're at the University of Florida. People can look you up there. Um, but is there any other contact information, websites, anything like that that you'd like to I have share? a, yeah, I have an academia.edu um, webpage uh, that I, I try to update once in a while. My University of Florida webpage has some links to some things that I've written. Um, and my book is, you know, available on Amazon and through Oxford University Press. Um, you can get it there. Um but that that's about it. Uh, <laughs> um, I, well, that's I haven't, <laughs> yeah, I haven't at this point in my life developed too much of an online presence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks so much, Jonathan. And uh, thank you. Yes, I'll speak to you soon. Thank you. Bye bye.